You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. At the beginning of the season, I brought on journalist Lauren Ober to talk about her job as a news gatherer and podcaster. And while she loves theater and even mentioned some musical podcasts she loves, she never actually crossed over into becoming a theater artist herself. On today's podcast, I have another journalist, Marcus Scott, who also had a love of telling stories. Yet he suddenly found himself writing musicals. And I was like, musical theater writing, like, I'm a journalist. I don't... Like, <laughs> like this is... I majored in this to, like, become a better public speaker. This is not what I do. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and this is Why I'll Never Make It, a top 25 theater podcast featuring conversations on the realities of a career in the performing arts. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can sign up for the monthly Win Me newsletter. It'll let you know of upcoming guests, fill you in on how you can get special bonus episodes, and give you a peek behind the curtain of this podcast. So sign up today at whyillnevermakeit.com. One of the bits of housekeeping I mentioned in this month's newsletter is that I'm going back to the old format of releasing one episode a week rather than splitting the interview into two parts as I've been doing these past few months. I had hoped that offering memberships and access to bonus episodes would gradually start to bring in some revenue and help me produce and pay for this podcast. However, that has not been the case. And the 42 bonus episodes I've created haven't really generated much interest or income so far. So I'm having to spend more of my time and energy seeking other ways to make money, since I, like many other actors, have been out of work since the pandemic began. So concentrating on one single episode, like the one you're getting today, greatly reduces the amount of time spent editing and producing the podcast. 
Now, the final five episodes, though, are rather short and don't require much editing at all, so they will continue to come out on Fridays and be available to any listeners who wish to help support this podcast. All right, so with that out of the way, let's get on to the interview. When it comes to telling stories, there's a lot of work that happens before putting pen to the paper or fingers to the keyboard. There's research, investigation, and often interviews. And Marcus Scott loves all of this. I mean, that's what drew him to journalism in the first place. But this love of writing eventually led him into theater. And as is the case with most artists, he also got into teaching. One of his current theater classes is with elementary and middle school students, teaching them the basic mechanics, the fundamentals of theater and film. I mean, in this day and age, most of them want to be YouTube stars. So he focuses on camera techniques and, of course, how to tell a story. The class also covers the visual arts, discussing contemporary art history and focusing on the diversity of artists out there not just the big names that usually get talked about and shown in museums. And in this class, Marcus is learning just as much as the students. That particular class is teaching me how to communicate in a way that is a little bit simpler. Um, These are younger children, and I'm used to teaching high schoolers, uh, young adults, how to learn and how to communicate you know, their artistic impulses in a way that is efficient, that, that is a little bit more um, nuanced, and yet having to do it in a very small... So like my teacher brain is very different than my artist brain. And for the rest of this episode, we will be focusing on that artistic brain, how he comes up with stories, the subject matter and topics that he's passionate about, And in our conversation, Marcus specifically mentions three of his plays, namely Tumbleweed, Sibling Rivalries, and Cherry Bomb. So I wanted to give you a brief synopsis about these works since we will be discussing them. Tumbleweed is a slice-of-life drama about a young girl named Willow whose off-putting natural hair, combined with her family's open acceptance of it and lack of maintenance, as well as her blooming womanism, causes controversy in the household. Sibling Rivalries is a male-driven political drama following a diverse group of young black men, all members of a fraternity, who face shifting loyalties and eroded principles when they are forced to compete against one another for a prestigious fellowship. And finally, Cherry Bomb is a musical that focuses on a savvy teenage boy named Franklin who revolts against the education system once the arts programs are cut from his school's curriculum. His fearless actions, though, inadvertently domino into another student's suicide, and Franklin spirals into sex, drugs, and ruin. Now, Cherry Bomb may sound overly dramatic, but it's actually based upon Marcus's own experiences as a child growing up. With my experiences in middle school, you know, there are kids who were like having children at 12. Mm. Uh, you know, there are kids who were selling drugs and uh, coming back from home and they either smell dirty or they, they come back with injuries. This is a middle school that's no longer around. They did close it because of the low test scores over there, it just kind of got lower and lower and lower. What, like one of the teachers, um, one of my math teachers, for example, was like an alcoholic who'd come to work like smelling of alcohol. And so when I wrote that in the story, 
people didn't think that was like a real thing. I was like, no, no, no. I have friends here. They'll tell you. <laughs> like, they went to the same school I did. <laughs> so, like, this, like, is, this is real life. This is real life. Real life writing. That's really the best way to describe the kind of work Marcus does. It's something of the moment. It's meaningful, insightful, and true to the experiences that Marcus knows firsthand or has researched down to a minute detail. And one of the most ever-present issues affecting artists right now, of course, is the pandemic. It just won't seem to end. And even through this hardship, Marcus continues to grow as an artist and a writer. And this is something that I had to learn through quarantine. Um, I didn't really know what my voice was because, you know, when you're a playwright, you have to, like, send out a bunch of artistic statements. You have to, like, you have to literally write and tell people, like, what you're doing and how that voice is different than everyone else's. And I did not have that in my pocket really before quarantine. I would sit down and I, and I could tell you the difference between a, a Katori Hall and a Dominic Morso. I could tell you the difference between a Charles Fuller um, and uh, August Wilson, but I could not tell you like how my voice differs from everyone else's because there are so many more Black voices now. It's not just uh, a Lynn Nottage or a Susan Roy Parks, you know, you're seeing kind of a little bit of everybody right now. Everyone's kind of tackling similar issues. But what I learned about myself was I am working through an aesthetic of Black geeks. You know, I like nerdy stuff. I can write a Black Lives Matter piece. I can write a, a piece about Flint. I can write a piece about slavery. I don't want to write any of those stories. I have no interest in those stories. One, because a lot of those stories have been told. But two, I think that like if we're going to look at stories that really uh, exemplify the multitudes and the colors and the ranges and the myriad of dimensions of people of color, particularly Black people and Black bodies, that we need to show us in completely different spaces. That means if you are a Black kid in Appalachia, what is your story? If you are uh, an astronaut in space, you know, and you're looking to colonize a planet, what are, you know, what are what does race look like on that planet? You know, like if you are a, a woman wrestler, what does it look like to be a woman of color in the world of combat sports? And how do people treat you? That's the kind of stories I'm interested in, and I feel that those are a little bit more up my alley. Besides the pandemic, though, the social justice and race issues of the past year have also been particularly inspiring to Marcus's writing. Over the summer, I wrote a bunch of rage plays, I call them, and it was about what happens when um, you have to explain your Blackness, when you have to explain what it's like to walk in the skin, when when you get tired of being patient and waiting um, those are the kind of things I, I, that I'm doing with my plays. Um, and so they all, they usually come from like either curiosity right now I'm working on a play about wrestlers. Um, another, hmm. another play I'm working on is because I just have a genuine interest watching horror movies. So I'm working on another play that's like looking at like slashers from the nineties, you know? Yeah. It certainly sounds like the, that your mind's kind of going a mile a minute and it goes off in many directions. And so your writing does the same kind of thing, whether you're writing plays, 
whether you're being the journalist and you're researching this, you go in many different directions because your interests are so varied. And does that help you as a writer? Or because you're going in so many directions, it can be hard to focus and stick with one thing, with one project at a time? Yeah, for me, I am a writer that hates deadlines. <laughs> um, <laughs> I uh, can write and focus on various different stories at one time. I, I developed that muscle, thank God, through uh, NYU. But when it comes to, like, if you give me a deadline and they're like a week apart and I'm working on a full-length or two full-length plays at the same time, that's when it gets a little scattered brain. Yeah, that's when it's like, yeah, when do like when can I focus on this and what can I give attention to this? Um, you know, I'm, I'm actually going through that right now with these two plays uh, because they're both due within a week of each other. And it's about the beast that you feed, you know, which one do you give more attention to? <laughs> but yeah, my brain kind yeah. of does, it, it, <laughs> I, it's all over the place. How does your writing differ between what you create for for actors, for audiences, and what you write for publications and readers? When I am writing an article, I'm really thinking of it on a very sociological, like I'm examining it as if it's like a research paper. I, I spent hours upon hours uh, researching not only my subjects, but I'm asking, I, I want to know everything about them. I want to know like, the first word they said as, as a child, I, I really want to get like an in-depth, I approach it as if I'm writing a documentary. Um, I'm looking at statistics. I'm looking at figures. I, I'm looking at the time frame in which my subject was born so I can like speak to them about that and, and how that may have impacted their upbringing and how they may have fallen into the arts and the kind of characters they play, for example. I've written everything from health to sports to politics, you name it. But when I'm writing a story for the stage or for the screen, I am really, it's more personal. It's kind of like a live journal entry <laughs> or, um, you know, I really want people to kind of get into my headspace. Some of the questions I'm asking are pertinent to where my mind is at that time. Uh, for my play, Tumbleweed, I want to try to play for my sisters and my nieces and nephews to kind of enjoy something that was a little wholesome. But I also wanted to explore what does it mean to have black hair and beauty standards in a way that was palatable, but also looked at different tropes, looked at the Cosby's, those kind of like big like homes kind of like sitcoms of the 80s and 90s. So do you find that the journalistic side of your brain combined with the artistic side of your brain do both help each other's writings? Yes. For example, I have a book of several books on um, on wrestling right here. Just because I grew up with wrestling, it's something that I, I loved, but I have been taking the time to kind of like read and like really kind of catch up on like the culture of wrestling and like the history of wrestling. And because of that, it's allowed me to really kind of like research that like if I was speaking to a dramaturg or if I was speaking to a director, I can tell them like, no, this is the vibe I'm going for. I try to make sure that my plays are very detail oriented with different facts. That's the one thing J School has taught me. Uh, and that's just to really be about the facts, to be open-minded, to know that things do change, that like now all the elements are there. 
And so with my work, I try to like make it as detail-oriented as possible. With Tumbleweed, I really, really wanted to make sure that we know the type of hair products that she uses for her hair, how many hours it takes to do the hair, tell you exactly like the neighborhood that they're in. So like, what are the closest schools that they go to? Yeah, you want it to ring true, to especially with people that, that would know that particular part of culture or that particular location that they will know, oh, this is actually what this what this looks like, what this feels like. Yeah. And so sometimes I'll take weeks, months sometimes to just kind of like get as much detail into the piece itself, you know? I, I say that like how my playwriting has influenced my journalism is that like the articles that I wrote when I first started as a journalist it's changed. I use more of a narrative style now. I don't like to do a lot of like fast stories. I like to like really sit with the story. Right. You want to paint the picture now rather than just kind of fact, 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 here's what happened. Moving on. You want to take your time. Exactly. And I spent so many years of like writing, like you have a deadline. It's you have a half an hour, 45 minutes to write the story. And I can do that. I can give you your fast, like one page story. But I like to really sit with the, the facts. That's what I fell in love with journalism. I fell in love with like reading like columns and really, really, you know, sitting down with pages upon pages of stories, you know, and like that's how it passed my time. So uh, now it's more about like how to get you from A to Z and really kind of leave breadcrumbs until the end. And with your playwriting, I'm curious if in going from that A to Z process, that you started out with a particular theme, a certain message, you know, a point that you wanted to get across. And through the writing of it, you actually may have maybe changed your mind or maybe it made you see things differently than when you first started writing. Yes. So for Cherry Bomb, which is a musical that I've been developing on and off for years because musical theater takes forever. (laughs) Yes, Um, it does. (laughs) That particular piece, I went into it Originally, I wanted it to be um, the story of Franklin Armstrong from the Peanuts, the Black character Mm -hmm. from the Peanuts. I just thought, like, I'd seen Dog Sees God, and I'd seen Snoopy and Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. I was like, well, why can't I do it for, like, his, you know, it's his life as the Peanuts character and, like, how he receives them or how they receive him. And what does that mean to be, like, Franklin? I was told not to do that. (laughs) <laughs> um, by uh, Kirsten Childs and Polly Pan, uh, who are teachers of mine at NYU. And during my time there, it was supposed to be this whimsical, kind of like fun story about the Peanuts characters. It became a story about the education system. Because at the time, they were cutting programs, especially in the arts, in my hometown. I'm from Albany, New York, and it's a college town. And they were cutting a bunch of theater and performing arts. And they're also cutting a lot of visual arts as well. And I, I started to research, just like, is this a thing that's just happening in my hometown or is it happening, you know, everywhere? And at that point, all across America, people were just starting to really cut theater programs. And I said, okay, like, that's the play I'm going to write. And I kind of found what that was. And originally it was going to be like this metaphor through chess. It's kind of evolved since then. There's still things about chess that they are in it, but um, the, the story kind of comes alive when we're talking about the arts and how it's impacted these, these kids and how it kind of manifests in ways when these kids can't really express themselves when they don't have an outlet. And 
how this kid begins to protest and use his voice to kind of incite change. I started it that June, like right after my first year. And when I came back, I literally had to like go 180 and then really, and really change it. And it's a piece that like it's gotten more and more important, especially post pandemic, (laughs) but it's also a show that I wrote before Dear Evan Hansen. And so there are definitely some things in there that now I'm going to have to like really go back and revisit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I was just about to ask, have you had to go back and revisit some of your own writings and be like, maybe I could present that in a better way or, oh, that idea has now changed? Um, yeah. So, you know, there's a suicide in my play. It happens and you see it, but it's something that gets compared to Dervin Hansen. The tone was kind of like a play on um, the rock music of the 60s and 70s, so like Grease, Bye Bye Birdie, it has to change because that's just not high school today. We're in a post-euphoria kind of world. Um, and so like it's just it, high school, you know, the way the lens of that, of that show, it's just going to have to change. For Tumbleweed, um, that's a play that because of what's been going on politically, it needs to go further And it's to go, you know, be more savage. And like, I didn't want it to be a mean-spirited play. But because of where we are, there's this kind of need for the play and the work to be less wholesome and a little bit more um, pointed. Well, I also think that now we're just in an era where the appetite for getting to the real root of something, about just really speaking truth to it, is a bit more accepted, and and as you're pointing out, even more desired, rather than just, okay, let's talk about the subject. No, let's really get into the subject. Yeah, and um, and these are, with that particular play, these are 13-year-olds, and, you know, and, um, you know, who are just kind of really discovering what it means to be dark-skinned, and how do how do you tell that story where these are young kids speaking their truth without it sounding like rage? So it's something that um and and, and I feel that black rage is very important and it should be a focus. It does get into some really heavy things, but I really want it to feel like you're kind of watching an after school special. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Like you're watching the Cosby's. And within your body of work, there's certainly been plays that have found success, found good reviews, and then there are those who may not have been received as well by audience or critics. Does your writing ever take that into account? Do you ever try to mirror a previous success so that you can have success going forward? I did, once. I did feel like I needed to, not gonna lie, yeah, I I felt like I needed to be a Jeremy O'Harris. I felt like I needed to be a Katoria Hall when I first started because that was is what got produced. But I don't write like them. Um, and while I can appreciate Katoria Hall, she's one of my favorite writers. She has her stories and I have mine. And I feel that there's space and there's opportunity for both of us. And to be honest, I'm not the only Black geek you know, there are several of us, and um, and what does that look like? Um, and a lot of a lot of these geeks, you know, they're not uh, Donald Glover, they're not Issa Rae, they're not like hot geeks. Some of these geeks have 
you know, anxiety, depression, some of them, <laughs> um, you know, I have insecurities uh, and, you know, that, you know, that we don't really see on television, that we don't see on stage. And what does that look like? And last year, Marcus got to show what that looks like. But instead of being in the role of journalist and asking the questions, it was another reporter who asked him questions. The interview appeared in an international scholarly e-journal based in France called Miranda. And this publication um, in particular wanted to speak about what does it mean to be a Black creative in America in theater and wanted to interview me, um, which was very uh, eye-opening. I'm so used to being the person that asks questions. And so uh, to be on the other side of that was a little weird for me. But um, at the time, you were seeing white American theater, which was really making a lot of noise at the time. You were seeing protests happening. Uh, there were, uh, you know, right outside of my door, I'm working on my plays and I'm in my emotions and I'm having theaters reach out to me and having, you know, asking me to be on panels and to explain racism to them. So this kind of came at the tip of that, where I was kind of really fresh in my feelings and just kind of, you know, got to a point where I just need to express a little bit of that rage publicly. I tried to be very politically correct when I went into the interview and I left just being a little bit more angry, a little bit more, um, uh, energized to kind of express those those negative emotions um, and to kind of like call it what it was. And during that time, I saw a lot of other creatives doing the same thing. There's a bunch of theaters being called out, a lot of people who were leaders in the field who were flouting and flaunting their their good deeds. They're, oh, I'm helping people who are diverse. <laughs> And kind of knowing a lot of like of, of those people, um, and not wanting to say who they were, <laughs> but kind of dancing around it. Yeah. And yeah. now um, people are just kind of really speaking out and speaking their names and saying the past actions, and that's where that that kind of came from. Fortunately, I think a lot of that kind of hand raising, we're good, we're not racist, we're doing all this, we love Black people. We, I think a lot of it has died down to, okay, now let's get to real conversations rather than just sending out emails and press releases about how good you are. Yeah, I think it's become uh, an issue of action. People being like, okay, that's great, that's your, you know, that you're using lip service, but what are you going to do? How are you highlighting this work? How are you going to highlight this work going forward? Because it's trendy now. You know, you know, people are looking at you and you want to be on this side of history. But at the end of the day, we're going to look at your actions. We're going to look at how you're holding yourself accountable and the kind of work that you're going to pioneer, that you're going to allow into your facilities. And so many of these institutions, and I think you're already kind of seeing it because it, it has died down, but you're not seeing a lot of those institutions really give work to people of color. And something I did say in that interview, people right now are doing a lot of uh, talking about like the, you know, Native Americans and um, indigenous people and not really <laughs> giving work to those people. People talking about uh, the achievements brought on by black and brown uh, people in America, but not 
<laughs> giving uh, those people commissions, not giving those people a way to create, not really helping them with their livelihood. And that's something that like going forward, we really need to address um, because right now we are in the midst of a black renaissance, especially with the quarantine people are creating right now. And the ones who are creating are going to, are coming out with some next level work. And I feel that work is really going to dictate theater for the next 10 to 15 years. Because as far as being on camera or on stage, we can all list off many people mm -hmm. of, of color that are in front of the camera, you know, that are in front of the audiences. But I think what's really been good over the last six to nine months is that there's been, as you said, this renaissance, this resurgence of Black artists who are writing, who are creating, who are the ones behind the scenes getting their work out there. And that's the harder work and the work that's less seen, but equally just as important. For the last five years, really, there's been this kind of uptick in how we look at Black bodies on the stage and in media. You know, when we see Barack Obama, when we see Beyonce, when we see Oprah, we are looking at these people and they are like, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you know, they seem kind of superhuman, a little too perfect. They have billions of dollars. They uh, they dress impeccably. They speak in such a way. They're just magnetic when they uh, produce a project or when they drop a book. It's just the peakness of, like, Black greatness, you know? It's the talented 10th come to life. And what happens when you are not that? When you don't have those, uh, those resources, when you don't have that kind of money, when you don't have that swag? I mean, Obama had swag. Like, when, he, when he walked into the, uh, the White House, it was... There was just this cool. We've never seen anything like that. The way he was cold switch. It, he could talk to this person from like Alabama from the South who was like a Trump supporter over here. And then he can come over to the, the inner cities and he would just blend. He was this chameleon, but there was this effortless like cool and this like swag that like black men have. You know? And look at Beyonce. I mean, everything from her videos to her fashion statement. When you look at what she did with Homecoming, it was just visionary. It was just, it was something that we'd never seen. And it like managed to kind of tack on all these different elements of Black culture, but it's always kind of been seen as this kind of like throwaway. And she just made it so cool and so timeless and so classic. And so what happens when you are not that? What happens when you are just Black and you're regular? So I, uh, when I'm writing in my stories, there's always a question I'm asking. And when it comes to you yourself as a Black writer, you're writing not just for Black characters, but a colorful cast of characters. And in this awakening and, and wokeness, so to speak, are there lines now of who can write for who? And if you're in this group, you can't write about that group and vice versa. Do you think that there are lines forming? Yes. And I think that it is damaging in many ways to what it means to be a writer, to be the creative, because you're seeing people who are saying that like, oh, like, well, you know, for, for actors, for example, it's like, well, only gay actors can, can play gay characters. <laughs> and I think that's 
ridiculous. Um, uh, I I think that if you're an actor and if you're a really exceptional actor, then you, it, it, the story dictates that you are the best person to do it. You should do it. And I think it's a similar experience being a black writer, you know, black culture. In many ways, it's like, well, this is a story that a struggle, and this is about the hood, and this is, and um, we're more than that. We come from the suburbs. We come from the country. We come from uh, the Caribbean. We come from all over the world. You know, so we can't be so myopic. Um, and I think that, like, if you have the ability to tell the stories in an authentic way or in a way that's just, like, if it's real to you and people like you, then you should tell that story. I do feel that there are lines. Like, I don't think, like, if you're a person from the Midwest and you don't know what it's like to live in a major city, maybe you don't write that story. I do believe that you should stick with what you know. But I feel that, like, if you have a story that, like, resonates with you and you can tell it your way in your fun way, then then you should do it. Yeah. I think it gets back to what you were saying before about sticking with facts and, you know, what drew you to journalism. And it's about sticking with the stories that, you know, the experiences that you have, the things that you can give authenticity to exactly whether or not you are gay or are black or are Asian or whatever it is, you can still give an authentic voice to the human condition, no matter what, form it comes in yeah. and, and, and and where it happens to be. As long as you're giving that voice, then yeah, then you can write for these different segments of society while giving truth to them and treating them with respect. Exactly. I don't think that like race and gender and sexuality are mutually exclusive. I don't think they're the same thing, but like, I do feel that like if you are a person of color and you are telling a story like I write different characters from different nationalities and backgrounds. I've written uh, East Asians. I've written Southeast Asians. I've written Latin, you know, Latinx uh, people. But I also do, you know, believe that like there's a level of staying in your lane. You know? mm-hmm. And so like uh, if you're a person and you are trying to write a story about the trans experience, you better speak to somebody who's trans, who's gender not conforming. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You better know that subject matter before you write about it. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's not about, it's not even about like, Oh, people are going to say something going to get canceled. It's just a thing of like, just it's about being a, a good person about being a right person. So it's just about being authentic, being real. I come from a lower work, you know, middle-class working family. You know, I know what it's like to be the first person in my family to go to college, the first person to go to grad school, the first person to leave town, I can write that story. What I can't do is write a story about what it means to be a farmer and, you know, Milwaukee. That's not my story. Right. (laughs) Now, with that upbringing, did it come with certain expectations as you began to be a writer, as you began to express your opinion, tell these stories? Was there an expectation of the kind of writing that you should be doing? Well, to clarify, I what I wanted to do when I was younger is I wanted to be like the next Michael Jackson. Everybody in my family is they're either singers or they're in the church or you know some kind of musician. Um, and so that's what I thought I was going to be. But as I gotten older and as I started to like go, okay, I'm going to be a writer – 
the expectation becomes, oh, you're gonna be like Tyler Perry. You're gonna be like, <laughs> like, <laughs> and I, no, I, I'm not, I'm not gonna be like Tyler Perry. You know, I'm gonna write these stories, and a lot of my stories have queer characters. A lot of these stories have people from what you would call alternative lifestyles, and you know, there is this this kind of idea of like representing the race, representing the people in the best light. I want to represent the people authentically. Yeah, warts and all. I think that's important to recognize that we all have our strengths, we all have our weaknesses, and it's that combined effort that makes us who we are. Exactly. You know, because I am the person who went to college, the person who went to grad school, you know, you're going to get either a nine to five, you're going to work, you'll be a doctor. Because that's what I wanted to do originally. I wanted to be a psychologist. And I discovered very quickly that that was a no for me. Uh, <laughs> uh, eight to 12 years of just school uh, was a no for me. Then you get into practice, you know? And so really the focus on like my first love, I always had a, a notebook around me, you know, poetry writing and songwriting became journalism and telling stories through that way. And then eventually playwriting. I guess the expectation now uh, is because I am not in my 20s anymore. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we, that. we grow. We learn. Yes. We learn. Um, and so the idea is like, okay, so like, that's great that this is happening. That's great that that happened. But like, <laughs> like how can you get this? You know, how are you going to make this money? How are you going to do that? I think for every artist, there comes that point at which you start to to balance more evenly that that creative artistic side with the with the business just n- necessary needs of life side and you know from time to time one will will outweigh the other but you try to keep that balance and i i think that all of us artists especially especially over the last year have really had a hard time finding that balance yes the last year i wrote 10 plays which is something oh, wow. that um i didn't think was possible before the pandemic. <laughs> um, so I guess I needed that, um, you know, but I also, um, like many people, I lost a lot of opportunities, opportunities like that would have like changed my life. Um, you know, I lost an opportunity uh, for uh, an opera of mine uh, to premiere at the Met. Wow. Chances at uh, getting representation. And it's kind of like starting all over again, but it really kind of made me dig deep into like, not only my purpose, but like the kind of stories I wanted to tell. And I, you know, I didn't know I wanted to write stories about black nerds, about, you know, uh, about people who are a little quirky and a little weird. Well, that's who I am. That's who I've been, but I didn't know that, uh, you know, there was power in that, in telling those stories. Marcus definitely tells powerful stories, and there's a link to a list of his works in the show notes. But even though this interview was about him, his journalistic instincts still took over. Just because this is my my background as a journalist, so I might ask you a question. <laughs> but like, oh yeah, what prompted you to start the podcast, and what have you learned? How have you grown as an artist? Well, I mean, it started in 2017 as an idea of mine that I was like, you know what? I, I, everyone's doing these podcasts. And it was specifically, my dad wrote a porno. I don't know if you've heard of that podcast. <laughs> no, I haven't. Yeah, it's called My Dad Wrote a Porno. And that's exactly what it's about. This guy discovered that his father had been writing these like sensual, erotic novels 
very cheesily, mind you, but he discovered. And so he started reading them chapter by chapter on this podcast. And, and, and they're quite funny because it's, you know, it's this old white guy just trying to write <laughs> sexual stuff. And some t- <laughs> there's, there, there's a girl on the podcast who goes, that's not how that works. Like she's going, <laughs> you know, that's not what female bodies do. But um, so I, I was listening to that and I was like, I want to do something fun like that and kind of banter back and forth. So I asked a friend of mine and then obviously we went off in a very different direction and created Why I'll Never Make It as as kind of an interview thing. But that same feel of exposing things and talking and bantering back and forth. So that, that was the foundation of, of the kind of format that we wanted to do. And since he moved on, I've narrowed the focus of it a bit more to really focus on the the guests and the interviews and the kind of people that I bring on. And I will say that for me, I've discovered that I really want people, especially if they're getting into the business, to really understand what they're signing up for. Because I know for myself, when I started, I didn't really realize, I, I like to sing, I like to be on stage, so I'm going to do this. Not really realizing all of the business, the stuff that goes into when you're not on stage, when you're not singing and performing, what else are you doing? You know, how how else are you being creative? And so through this podcast, I've certainly seen a, a lot of people who came to that their own realization in their own way and what that's meant to them and how they've become these multi-hyphenates doing this and that when they're not just performing or just creating their their art. So it's I, I think that's it's kind of become a mission of mine to really help people understand that and then navigate it as best as possible. Well, it's lovely. Thank you for sharing with that with me. I just didn't know. I, I've been listening through the podcast, but that was something that I, I felt inclined to ask. So now it's your turn. What led you to the podcast and caused you to want to reach out and be a guest on a show called Why I'll Never Make It? So I've been this summer, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. It's something that I um, I didn't do before the quarantine, to be quite honest. Um, it was, you know, I used to like joke with friends and say, like, that's old. You know, like, this is like NPR. That's like, that's what old people do. But um I'm older, <laughs> and um, and this summer I, I've been listening to the Royal Court and finding various different podcasts, and I stumbled upon this one. And what it was was the, the gamut of different talents and different levels of experiences that I got from it, and that's what prompted me to kind of let's reach out. I listened to about four or five different episodes, kind of back to back, and. I felt inclined to reach out and speak to you. It was the Aaron Cherry story that really prompted me to do that. My conversation with Aaron Cherry was definitely a special interview. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to that one, scroll back up the episode list to part one and part two of her February episodes. Well, thanks so much to Marcus for sharing his insights and unique vision of theater arts. And thank you for listening and joining us in this conversation. If you know someone who could benefit from an episode like this, then please share this podcast with them. Well, I'm your host, Patrick Oliver Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Music in this episode is by Vortex. Why I'll Never Make It is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time with actress and producer Ashley Kate Adams as we talk more about why I'll never make it.
Most enterprises use disparate systems to manage spend. The result? A reactive manual approach. CFOs and controllers, you deserve better. You deserve a unified spend platform from Brex. Brex makes it easy to proactively control spend with cards, spend management, travel, and bill pay in one place. You can create budgets with controls built in, track and adjust in real time to keep teams accountable, and automate compliance to close the books faster. Ready to control your spend with one unified platform? Visit Brex.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.